Welcome to Rock Paper Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfey. And my name is Stephen A. Mackay. We're both best-selling historical fiction authors, and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV and games. Oh, and we also talk about Hawkwind and naked dancers from time to time. <laughs> the dancers at the end of time, perhaps. On today's episode, we're delighted to welcome to the podcast author Jean Gill. According to Jean's website, she is a Welsh writer and photographer living in the south of France with two scruffy dogs, a Nikon D750, a beehive called Endeavour, and a man. She's published all kinds of books, both with conventional publishers and self-published, from prize-winning poetry, novels, military history, to a cookery book on goat cheese, or goat cheese even. Jean's latest novel is called The Ringbreaker and is set in the 12th century. And the strap line from the book is In the Twilight of the Gods, when the last Vikings rule the seas, two cursed orphans meet on an Orkney beach and their fates collide. So, welcome, Jean. Hello, Jean. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Great. So, Jean, can you tell us a bit about The Ringbreaker and the inspiration behind it? Well, Matthew's just done the first bit, and I couldn't do it better than that. <laughs> well, you could actually... I was actually going to... I was actually going to do the... Um, I, I thought, after I started doing it, I thought I could have done the American sort of voiceover The movie voice, voiceover. You know, like, yeah, yeah. In the twilight of the old gods. But um, I didn't. Uh, no, Too late. no, I don't think I don't think so. And Stephen could have done it with an Orkney accent, so that well, is lined up for another time. I don't know about that. I think my accent's slightly different from that far north. It certainly is. It's almost into a Norwegian accent. I found so inspiration. I went to a historical novel society conference in Glasgow. All right. In two thousand and eighteen and took the chance to have some solo time because I quite like being on my own because it never happens and took my camera off to Orkney for a few days because I'd always wanted to see some of the more remote Scottish islands from my childhood in Scotland. I just had this romantic idea about them. And in my Troubadours series set in the 12th century, there's an Orkney prince who goes on pilgrimage and just stops off in Narbonne. And it really happened, which to me was amazing. And that was all I knew about 12th century Orkney. I wasn't really thinking about books. I was thinking about photos and scenery and soul time. And I went to Maizho. I think that's how you say it, because I always get it muddled with the Welsh pronunciation. But it's the prehistoric site uh, on mainland Orkney 
And I thought, yeah, prehistoric history. Oh, it's really great. And I stood there in this prehistoric tomb, knowing bugger all about it. And then the guide said that I was surrounded by Viking graffiti. That all around me in that prehistoric chamber were 12th century runes carved by uh, a group of Vikings in my special period who'd broken into the tomb, probably during bad weather. All of that's a bit vague. And among these carvings, dating back to the same time, is the mice hole dragon. So this exquisite little dragon carved on the wall. So it's graffiti, but it's beautiful. It's history. And wow. it, 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 it just blew me away completely. That's, Absolutely. That's amazing. It's amazing when you just something like that just touches you and you feel like that you're touching the past that you the are magic exactly yeah. yeah it's the magic of sort of time travel almost it's a, it's strange it's exactly that and you know what it's like with your books as well when you go to a place and it it grabs you doesn't it and it says write about me write yeah. about me well, yeah well I, I just last week i was in florence and luca in in tuscany and nothing to do with the sort of periods that I'm writing about, but just being there for a few days surrounded by Renaissance history, you know, it's, it's very difficult not to feel the sort of the pull of the history of a, of a place when there's so much history there. And like you say, in this remote place in Orkney, um, having that, that something that, that, that someone's hands have touched and chiseled and made some piece of artwork, you know, and there's other bits of graffiti in the walls and it's incredible. So do you know what those things were written? Is it um, clear? Yeah, I, Clean it off for the podcast? <laughs> uh, no, a lot of it isn't. <laughs> so I'll tell you that after the podcast no, you, is you over. You can say anything. We can we can leave it well, in already. We'll leave it out. <laughs> no, well, I I asked the the guide what the the rune said because I uh, I have had no background in old Norse, never mind in runes, and uh, some of them she told me others she didn't know and I sort of mentally put it aside that I would track all this down for later and I vaguely thought I'd write a short story to go with the troubadours you know that makes sense but it's too big for that so once I'd finished the fantasy trilogy I was working on I started the research properly and I splashed out a hundred euros, which is a lot of money for me, on a history book which has got all the runes with all the possible interpretations from that burial chamber. And it's just my precious. It's wonderful. <laughs> because among among the runes is one um that states that they're the pilgrims, and it's written by Hliff, the Jarl's housekeeper and it's a female name this is a character from your book yeah so she's real right but that's the only thing anybody knows about her is that she was in there carving that she was amongst those who went on a long ship uh on this journey of pilgrimage to jerusalem in the mid 12th century wow. and so within this this history non-fiction book I had all the runes, but of course you've got no timeline on them. 
and you've got only the names of people. And most of them are like, well, I don't know what the public toilets are like in your neck of the woods. But when I lived in Clenethley, you know, you shut the door and you read Fred was here in a variety of um, ways. And that's what Viking runes are mostly like. So-and-so carved this rune uh, and again and again. But it gives you the names of the people who were there and not the timeline. So I've I've got a sort of grid of that that I'll work into the story at some stage. But that was the starting point. And the other the other thing that was fascinating about this one book was that the um, suggestion came from this historian that Cliff was maybe the daughter of Cliffolf, who was the murderer of St. Magnus. And I thought, oh, can you imagine what it's like being the daughter of someone who murdered a saint? A bit <laughs> tricky, I'd have thought. And the rest came from that beginning. So did, did they? Uh, I don't know anything about um, Saint Magnus, but normally saints and uh, become saints after being martyred. So did he become a saint after being murdered by? Cliff yeah, Wolf? absolutely. And he's the 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 head honcho in sainthood for Orkney because. He's an Orkney saint, and because the cathedral was then built for him, so St Magnus Cathedral is is an amazing um, place to visit. And exactly what you were saying about the places you've just visited, Matthew, that you go there and you you well, for me, I now know that St Magnus's remains are there, and so uh, Ronald, who is another key character in the book, he was later sainted as well. Is this on fun. Orkney? A cathedral yeah. on Orkney? Yeah, mainland. I never even never knew that. And I've got a friend that lives there, but I never realised there was a cathedral there. Yeah, and it was built by the same builders who built Durham. Oh, they wow. then headed off to mm -hmm. Orkney. And and they, they brought in all these wonderful techniques from the French cathedrals. So from Durham to Orkney. Mm -hmm. Wow, incredible. Another reason to go to Orkney if you if we needed another. Yeah, I've been trying to avoid oh, my it's... friend, but I'd love to. Do. I'd love to go up to Orkney. Well, if you if you're going to go up there, Stephen, and you've got a friend that we can um, make stay take us house. out for a drink or something, uh, or even stay <laughs> stay in his house, then, then give us a shout because I'd love to go up to Orkney, and I could follow it could follow in the long tradition of me writing books that take place in places and then visit them years later. I never, I, I very rarely manage to visit places until after I've written the book and it's been published because I've got in A Night of Flames, they end up in Orkney for a while. Um, and it wasn't planned, but um, that book came out earlier this year. Um, well, I hope you haven't got any forests there. No, no, there's no forests. There's not very, there's not very much there at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do That's just as well. I do try to do some research. <laughs> I don't just make it up. Well, I do. But... Oh well, that, when I when I went there, I I had no idea what it's like. And when I'm on my own, I wing it a bit and do things that I wouldn't be allowed to because they're not safe if I'm in company. And I arrived at this little airport that's like landing in someone's living room. And I thought, yeah, you know, even here, the, there'll be a taxi. Yeah, yeah, a taxi. Nope. <laughs> so I potted around. Nope. Mm, no sign of taxis. I went back in and, uh, you know, there's always a nice man you can ask stuff. And I said, uh, uh, is there a taxi here? And then some very, very heavily accented stuff came back from which I gathered that, 
if it was in Wales, it would have been Jones the taxi, but it was the local equivalent, was delivering some stuff so <laughs> he could take me with him to do the delivery. So I was sort of bundled into the taxi with a load of <laughs> rolls of um, goodness knows what back of a lorry. And he gave me the long way around so he could tell me all about the island. And he said, I am getting to the point of this That's story. Right. He said, Every, everyone says, everyone says there's no trees here. And I said, uh, you see, I live in a place where there's huge forested areas. So I didn't know what to say politely. And so I didn't. And he said, there's a tree. <laughs> and we drove on a bit. He said, there's, there's another, another one, tree. Yeah. <laughs> and I, th I think we must have seen six trees before we drove for half an hour. And he was really, really pleased to have shown me all Orkney's trees. That's it. So you saw the forest of Orkney. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> but it's interesting. Oh, Those sort of things are interesting, place. though, because, I mean, I haven't, I, I don't think there were trees there um, even way back in the, the Viking times. But it's possible that there were uh, there were more trees back then and they've all got cut down because that happened. Yeah, in, we cut down. I believe that's old. in Iceland, isn't it? Is, um, didn't there, weren't there forests in Iceland and they all got cut down? And now it looks very much like Orkney. Yeah, I think Scotland yeah, was heavily uh, deforested. Yeah. And Orkney would yeah. be the same, I would guess. No, not Orkney. They had a shortage of wood there and there's all kinds of stuff about how they um, brought the wood over from Scotland or from Norway because Caithness belonged to Orkney yeah, and Orkney belonged to Norway, but they had to import wood. So they used peat and yeah. um, stone, a bit of stone. Yeah, so yeah. I, I've got that actually yeah. in the book. I've got the... the... The, the long house or the, the house where they, they go is actually built of wood, oh, sorry, of stone, and um, mm. sort of, there's a bit of a mention of it. But um, it, it, some of the research I did for, for Orkney, and not having been there, but because they approached by ship, I found some YouTube videos of a guy going around on, on one of these, um, like, motorbike things. What what are they called? Um, like, I can't think what they're called. The things you What's... They used to put it, but in but in water, like... Um, oh, oh, I know. Like speed, yeah, I don't know what they're yeah, called. Yeah, speed bike yeah. thing. A jet ski. There you go. I just couldn't think of the word. Couldn't think of the, it's not. It's not historical enough. Yeah. So jet ski, and he's and he's bombing around, but he's filming like with a GoPro, and so he's like on Orkney, and he goes out, you know, two miles away or a mile and a half away, or whatever. So you can see Orkney miles off with the birds flying around, and then he and he's talking to the camera. So he's like saying, "On oh, here I am at such and such a beach, you know, and I'm going to go look at this crag and this cliff." And it's fantastic though for the, for the sort of writing, imagining them coming up on a on a long ship. I could get the view. Mm from the you know from the actual water and mm. see the cliffs as they approach and things like that so it was that was interesting it's amazing what you oh, could that find would be a good that would be a good link for me i like i need to watch things to get into them because i'm not very good um with particularly the mechanical side of building and making i have to actually do it and see it yeah. being done well, that, I did. I found some other videos about like making Viking longships as well, and everything. When I was doing that research, it was. I'm. I'm a bit. I don't know if it's because I find it easier for it to go in that way, or it's just um, that I'm lazy and it's easier than reading a book. But yeah, <laughs> obviously I do read stuff, but I prefer to. With well, stuff it's, like you know, that, building a ship, it's much easier yeah. to watch it happen than to read. I mean, it's easy to read about it, but you don't really understand it. That's right. And a guy, is t a guy telling you, here, I chop yeah. the wood like this, and this is how I use the axe, and I do this. Mm. You know, it's and the of, noises it makes and, and what if, the planks minutes, look yeah. like. And yeah. you know, that's much better than reading it from a book. Yeah, and I find the same with fight scenes as well. I was watching Gleamer Wrestling on YouTube, as well as the Voyage of the Sea Stallion, where you actually see a replica Viking ship. Yeah. 
doing that voyage. That's the one, everything. yeah. I, I, that's, oh, it's fantastic. That's one of the ones I Absolutely watched. wonderful. Really good. Yeah. That's brilliant. It's, it's a really good, really good documentary with, with all the, you know, talking to the people on board. And I've got loads of little snippets of information out of there and put them into the, into, um, uh, a night of flames which is when they go out on the ship and all the different things that happen to them basically come from that documentary we've probably we've we've probably written up the same stuff then probably. so i'll have to read i'll have to read that because i read i read the journals they wrote from that as well yeah, and there's yeah. some bass yeah I read some okay of that stuff. right i read the first of the Benicia chronicles and i read um stephen's druid but i haven't had I've been reading so many things for too many people. Yeah, you know it's, what it's, it's like. so difficult to keep but, up with everybody. Um, everybody writes yeah. so much, and it's it's really yeah. tough. Oh, Night of Flames has just gone up my list, so I can check out your Orkney stuff and run away very fast if I've got the same. Both written the same oh. book. Well, if we've both, oh, yeah. if we've both written similar bits, but I mean, you know, <laughs> there's only so much you can write about Vikings and on on ships. But yeah, I mean, they, they don't spend that long in Orkney. <laughs> Orkney's a stop off in my in my book, and then they go off to Norway. But um, it's it's more the, the the sort of the sea voyage part. They go up from from uh, yeah. Northumberland or Northumbria along the coast, and then stop in Orkney, and then then go across. I was originally going to have them going straight across to Norway from Northumbria, and then it's when I started doing research, I realised that's not what the Vikings did. They actually no. would go across, you know, to to the Orkneys or Shetland, and then down. And so I thought, well, I can't really just fly in the face of reality. So that's the way they do it. They go up and they stop there for a few days, and then go across. So on to another on to another question, because <laughs> we talked a lot about so the Ring Breaker set in 12th century um, Orkney. Um, and you mentioned that you've written uh, another series called the Troubadours Quartet, which is also set in the, in the 12th century. Uh, but it's obviously a different place. Um, I believe it's set in, in France. Um, so you, there's some links there, which I, I wasn't aware of. You said that there was this prince from Orkney that that appears in in those books as well. What are what are the other um, links to the books, and what similarities or what differences are there between those two, between that series and this new historical fiction? Well, I'm going to use a word that makes people run away and is very rude, and you will rarely hear it. I don't think I've heard it on any of your po your podcasts. And um, poetry. I think that people are very scared of poetry and yet when you ask people they can always remember a line of verse it sticks with them and I know you and Stephen have both talked about ballads yeah and for me that that's a form of poetry but it's you can get away with saying song and ballad but when you use the p word well, people yeah. as people feel threatened mostly because <laughs> they've had really shitty teachers in the past who made it so academic and off-putting and not for ordinary people yeah. boring yeah. yeah absolutely so the troubadours were the the rock stars of the middle ages and they not only performed the songs and wrote the lyrics they carried the news some of it fake news and I was interested in Stephen's work because you looked a lot at the the ballads of Robin Hood to draw your stories for the for that series, didn't you? Yeah, they were the original tales. So yeah. that was what I went back to. Although I'm, I'll be honest, I never read the actual old English versions very much. I was more into the translations because they're so much easier to read for someone like me that's not particularly bright. But uh, 
Yeah, yeah, we'll ignore we'll ignore that because that's fishing for a compliment. Yeah, I, so, I ignore those. You know, it's not really it's yeah. true. I ignore all those. No, yeah. it's not true. <laughs> See, he got it in the end. He got he got it. He got the compliment. Five, yeah, he got two. it. <laughs> right so the i live in the south of france and i was reading troubadour poetry because i started off as a poet and i love poetry and i hope that i taught it in a way that the the kids i taught actually thought it was fun because we used to do everything from bon jovi to you name it as poetry and the book i was reading about the troubadours said that rumor said that there was a a young female troubadour in the touring the south of France with a big white dog. Now, my breed of choice are Pyrenean mountain dogs, and the big white dog captured my imagination completely. And I could see her; I could see this this girl. And there were women troubadours. Um, so that was where it all started with the picture in my mind of this girl in a ditch running from whatever had happened to her and a big white dog Pyrenean mountain dog was also running from stuff and the two of them sort of hooked up and that's how it all began but there are four books and although they start in the south of France what was then Occitania they travel to the holy land they ride on camels they go across deserts they take their music uh from the Holy Land down to um, what's now Catalonia and Zaragoza. Oh, wow. And it, they end up in, this is totally unexpected to me, but they end up in Wales. <laughs> and the the link throughout his song and the link with the, the ring breaker is that, that yeah, okay, I love, I love all the adventure. I love the crusaders. I love the knights. I love the battles. But it does annoy me sometimes that people don't credit the Vikings for being outstanding poets. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of getting totally pissed in a bar and then standing up and spontaneously rapping with that degree of technical brilliance and making everybody laugh at the same time. Well, could you do it? Certainly not. No. What is this flating? Is that what they called it? Flating. I don't know. I haven't heard that word. Uh, well, this is actually from the game on the Xbox Assassin's Creed, uh, which is a oh, right. the Viking edition. Uh, it's out just now, and that's what they do in it: flating, where it's it's kind of one guy against another, like a rap battle, basically, for Vikings. Oh. Brilliant. And that's what they do oh, in the pleased. game. So it's it's quite yeah. interesting. And they basically just kind of insult each other through rhyme. Yeah. Well, that that is one particular kind of poetry where they do the insults. And that was true in Wales as well. And that was true in in France. It's it was a a particular genre of poetry where you just slagged the hell out of right. whoever you were against as a poet. But there, there were other kinds as well. And whereas the French poetry has got kind of sexy love lyrics, very sexy, and all those were censored out, they're very rude. Um, the I've read a lot of North poetry now because that was a lot of my research. And it's far more like puzzles so yeah. that everybody there would work it out. And it's more, it's more intellectual than the French poetry. Yeah, they liked the riddles, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. 
Yes, the Anglo-Saxons really into riddles as well. That was a big, big thing. I think there's a huge link in culture between the Anglo-Saxons yeah, and the and the Norse yeah. is very, yeah. very similar. Before the yeah, and I this is a period I knew nothing about and a culture I knew nothing about. But one thing I did uncover was that um, women had far more rights in Viking society than in Anglo-Saxon. Well, in Anglo-Saxon, it, they had a lot of rights before they were Christianized. It's the it's the Christianity yeah. that takes it all away. So if you go back to the times. But even even later, they still have more rights than later in in the medieval period, in later medieval, you know, um, after the Anglo-Saxons. But um, but yeah, if you go back to the time, sort of pre um, pre um, yeah pre Christianization, really, so sort of eighth century or before seventh century, they they have a lot of rights, and even even throughout the whole of the Anglo-Saxon period, there's you know women got left land, and and um, they could be men could bequeath things to women and women could bequeath things and, and they could they could own things in their own right and run things in a way that later in um in high medieval period they, they weren't able to. Um so similar to, see, I, to the Vikings. I, I I felt cheated when I found out some of this stuff because the 19th century picture of medieval women was just fake news, completely fake news. Well I think there's I think there's definitely moments of history i mean definitely the the um the the victorian the the the, the historian the, the victorian outlook on history was very strange and skewed things for i think for britain especially for a long time um but in all sorts of ways in terms of the way that they portrayed you know vikings and women and all sorts of things but yeah i think there're definitely periods in history when women in the medieval period didn't have many rights and weren't able to do a lot but i think there were there were probably more periods when women did have more rights and more power than has commonly been let on or recognized but maybe they weren't you know maybe they weren't the ones writing the history and so well this is why i like the 12th century because i've uncovered so much what they the trendy word is agency by women mm. where they actually aren't just the power behind the throne but the damn power <laughs> and it's amazing it's really good fun and it makes for good stories yeah well you've written history we talked quite a lot about history stuff um and obviously talk about 12th century medieval um You've done some other stuff as well. You've done fant. I'm just looking at the list of things and and to to cover here. You've done. <laughs> you've also done fantasy. Done a fantasy trilogy called Natural Forces. You've done some Second World War stuff as well. So you've covered different. So Second World War is a bit of a jump um, <laughs> from from okay. medieval and you know and then the fantasy as well is 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 quite a leap away from i suppose there's some you know connections but how does that all come about and do you just jump from one project to the next or is there never is there not really a plan behind it at all i've written tw and published 25 books now and the first one was in 1988 and in those days there was no self publishing as there is now so i was seeking a publisher and writing when I could, day job, all the rest of it. But I didn't find the publisher of my dreams. I found three for different ones. It wastes a lot of time. And so what I suddenly realized was that I wanted to write what I wanted to write. 
because I wasn't commercial. I wasn't fitting in. I didn't have to earn the money. And each, I, I've got a drawer full of ideas and they compete. They say, write me, write me, write me. And then when one is noisy enough, that's the one that I go for next. But World War II was special because that's actually nonfiction. And it's based on my father's diary. Okay. He was in he, he was in World War Two Malta as a young Scottish soldier. Right. And he kept this diary illegally. He'd have been court martialed if it was found and wrote it up for the four years when Malta was bombed and won a George Cross for all the the horrors that they nearly starved to death on the island. And it my father stayed in the army. So this diary was a secret, but as a little girl, I was very nosy and I knew it existed, even though I never actually got to see it. You know, I knew there was this hidden thing. And after my father's death, uh, my mother said, is there anything you've, of, of your father's that you'd like? And I said, I, I want his diary. Oh, <laughs> right. This did not, this did not go down well really? with my mother. That's really. interesting. And she thought about it and first of all she let me read it in front of her wow so i couldn't take it away this is like, i could sit there sounds like giving being given the script the script for a for a new star wars movie or something you know they, they, they lock people in a room and say you, you can't yeah, take it away yeah absolutely and the re I, the reason she didn't want me to have it was because she didn't come off very well in it. Oh dear! All right. They were together. They were together then. You see, they were engaged, and for five years they didn't see each other. And my mother had the time of her life. <laughs> she had a great time. <laughs> she was riding her bicycle around Scotland, flirting with every man in the entire neighbourhood, and she was in the the women's army corps. And she she was having a great time, and her fiance was going through hell in Malta. He's nearly starving to death, and she's riding around yeah. Scotland having a great yeah, time. But, but the what makes this so poignant is she didn't know. He couldn't he couldn't tell her yeah. because the letters were censored, and that was what drove him to writing the diary, because he had to say the truth to someone or he'd go bonkers. And she would write these letters saying, I haven't heard from you for a while. And she even sent him blank writing paper. And he walked across the island to the post office because he thought there was a letter from her. And he shredded his feet because he had all kinds of physical problems from life as it was. And it was the sarcastic present of blank paper because she wasn't writing to her. All right. So there were some hard bits oh, wow. for her to remember. But they when when things got even worse and he was going to be moved because um, the final push, he went to Monte Cassino in Italy and it, that was going to be so horrific that he shipped the diary back, smuggled it back with a mate because he had no leave in five years. Wow. He was from hell on Malta to Monte Cassino. And the diary went back to my mother. Right. And then they kept it. They got married. So, then she, read, so she read and... this diary 
before when he was still out before there. he came yeah. back. I bet she felt, but she felt bad. I have yeah, to make up like for shit. that. Eh? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what what Gosh. can you do? They she she didn't know, yeah. and so she 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 felt that was the real problem, and also the reason it was kept secret was because he stayed in the army and he finished up as a major and that was seriously, seriously um, career killing stuff that he had in that diary. And now it, now it just seems we know what war is, mm. but there's an incident of friendly fire recorded in there when an Italian uh, prisoner of war ship is torpedoed and goes wow. down and the prisoners were all British so actually, the British forces killed hundreds of prisoners, and that was British all just hushed prisoners. up, obviously at the time, never, never yeah. mentioned. Yeah. yeah. So you've got you've got all of that, and he was only twenty two, and so the the well, I could talk about this for hours, but the the story, as I tell it, takes him with with diary extracts through from that first moment when he signs up. And they thought they were on holiday. It was the first time all these young men had gone abroad and he went to Malta and there were palm trees and sunshine. And then, of course, it gets dark, mm. very dark. Wow. So I wrote, I felt like I was writing it with him. And I, I've got to tell you this bit because it's a fabulous story. Um, I didn't. I couldn't write it up till my mother was dead. She did give me the diary, but she'd then... 10 years after my father had died, they had 40 years together. And then 10 years after his death, she married again. And I didn't want to write about their love for each other, mm. my mother and father, when she was having yeah. um, a, new, a new relationship. Mm. It wasn't, it wouldn't have been kind. So af after she died, I sort of grieved for her and for my father writing this book. And I wanted some information on the family. And my father's brother, was living in Canada. If he was still alive, he would be in his 80s. So I sent him a letter and said, um, I'm writing up my father's war story. Any chance of you helping me with some family stuff? And he emailed me back and he said, well, yes, of course. And he became a really close friend. He was in touch every day. And at one point he said, um, aren't you interested in my war story? Is it all about George all the time? I thought, oh my God, sibling rivalry, here we go. And he was a prisoner of war in France for 4.5 years. And I wrote up his memoir, which is very different because that was his story from the past. But they were chalk and cheese as characters. And my uncle was just yeah, so much fun and got up to so much mischief. He was always trying to escape... <laughs> And he, 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 in Scotland in those days, they taught French in schools and his French was very good. And he did, he kept trying to escape via local girls, via you name it. He was out there up to mischief. So I felt, I felt like I was getting the bulletins from World War II because I had my father's diary and my Malta research and I'd my uncle's stuff coming in uh, at the same time. And I was writing that. Oh, it was tremendous. Come really on. tremendous brilliant so so that explains it. i saw I, i'd seen you had these sort of couple of books set in the second world war and they looked like memoirs yeah. or things i was i was you know i was in it was interested to see that you know such a different yeah, thing so that makes different. a lot of sense 
But, uh, and um, you mentioned France a bit there, uh, and I had a look at your website, your photography website, which is really really good. And the French, the French landscapes in particular, the the photographs of them, like the daisies and stuff, are just fantastic. Thank you. So I, I go on. Sorry, there's no real question. It was just, <laughs> I was, I was just, I, I thought you might want to mention it because it's really good. So I assume it's a big part of your life. Yeah, I, I wasn't a photographer when I moved to France, but it was the landscape that inspired me and I started taking photos to show the folk back home. And that's 20 years ago that I've moved to France from Wales. And I've got friends who are very good photographers. And then I joined in stock, stock photography with iStock and Getty Images and learned the trade to actually have the technical quality of photography, worked with professionals. And this year I had my first solo exhibition as a photographer. So that's been a hugely important for me. And I've really enjoyed it. So it's been a mixture of the commercial through stock photography. And then I've I've turned to art and it's a lovely change from writing. You know, the way you you you've had too much of words and you just want to be with something else, something active or so I know Matthew walks the dog. I'm sure you walk the dog as well. And I knit, I cook, I but being out there with my camera is a different way of getting out and about and away from the words. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, Stephen plays guitar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, yeah. You explore your artistic side in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just looking at some of the photos. I tried to look earlier, and for some reason, the website wouldn't open for me before. But um, it's open now, and um, must have just been a, a glitch in the system. But yeah, they're amazing. Really great photos. So anyone listening, well, the... fully recommend that you go and look on um, Jean Jean Gill's website and then click through to her. Um, uh, what, what do you call it? To the um, the galleries. The galleries. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, and the the gallery that's there that shows the blacksmith working in a forge. Yeah, um, he, I had to talk him into letting me do the shoot, but I'm fascinated by Damascene steel. That's the 12th century side. And this young blacksmith was working in the market and I asked him if he'd make a knife for me. Right. Um, and I, I could photograph the whole sessions and he wasn't, he wasn't keen. You can imagine this little old lady saying, I want to take photos of you. <laughs> and yeah, okay he's got a job to do. And so I talked my way into an interview <laughs> in a way up at the forge and the forge is up in the mountains. If you can imagine in the middle, it's the forge in the forest from a fantasy novel. It's just amazing. Right. So I went up there and I took my most expensive lenses with me. So I had all the gear and I got it out. And he, as soon as he saw the gear, he thought I was a good photographer, whereas, of course, that's a load of shit. You can have a lot of expensive <laughs> gear. And all, all it means is you've got the money to buy expensive yep. gear. But that that helped. And then we talked about what he wanted out of the shoot. And I spent four half days shooting the making of my knife. And it's on my YouTube channel as a slideshow. But it was just magical. And then whenever I write, the blacksmith character in my medieval or my fantasy novels 
I think back to that. So I have a Damascene steel knife because I seem to remember that all your guests seem to have weapons and know how to use them. Well, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea how to use weapons, but um, I have a Damascene steel knife. Well, that's amazing. I, I, I did. My wife paid for me to go to a forge to do like a day of forging um, in a in a forge. Just it, you could see um, Glastonbury Tor from from the forge. Yeah. And the, yeah. the guy was an old, I think he was Austrian. Well, I was going to say he was old. He wasn't that old. He was probably in his late 50s. He was um, a guy from Austria. I think he was Austrian. And um, anyway, it was amazing. And he, he hand forged stuff. And he was like a master bladesmith. And he'd done pattern welded seaxes and, and all sorts. Yeah. He was incredible. Yeah. And real character. And I, I really enjoyed the day there. And we talked a bit about that I was writing and we talked about Anglo-Saxon stuff and everything. And and he said, you know, you can come back and you could do a, a, a bigger blade, you know, because I didn't do a blade. I just did some stuff, you know, but it was like a you know a poker and twisting metal stuff because I was in there for a day. Um, but he said, come back and you could do another course and do like a, you know, I do things where you can make a whole sword or whatever or a knife or things. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds like a great idea. And about Three, four weeks later, I looked him up on Facebook and he died of a heart attack just oh, a couple of weeks later. So sad. I was so excited looking forward to, to go going back. back and and it, when yeah. you meet someone, you think, oh, this is a great contact. I'd love to go back and meet this, you know, carry on talking to this guy. And it was literally just like weeks later and he, he passed away. So. It's it's a priv it's a privilege to meet people like that and to watch them work. Yeah. And you mentioned pattern welding and the real damascene steel they can't make anymore can they no. they've lost the the secrets and the materials and so i had a long chat with a a reader who got in touch with me who's a viking reenactor who used to be a blacksmith and and he has all kinds of theories about how they might have done it and he said truthfully they were more skilled than we have the patience to yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely about patience and time and, and effort. I mean, and obviously knowledge as well. Um, but I think there's a big difference between Damascene and pattern welded, actually. They're two different two, two different things, but they're often often the same word is used to describe them because they look similar. Yeah, and I think I think pattern pattern welding is as close as we get to the original Damascene. But the way that Mile, my blacksmith, worked, it's not um engraving on the surface it is folding and folding and folding yeah i think but i think with, i think that's with the two different types I think pattern, well i mean we could go into a whole different long discussion about this but i think damascene is obviously comes from damascus and it's a i think it's a different thing than pattern welding and i think pattern welding is very much the anglo-saxon and norse style of twisting the rods and hammering them together um before before they're forged it's not folding after they're after they're forged it's 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 i mean i'm not oh, an no expert, it's, it's, it's it's no he doesn't yeah. he doesn't mine doesn't fold after they're forged it's mm. part of the process yeah yeah but, but 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 it's not it's not damascene steel as it was no, i'm just yeah. using i use i use the term as a shortcut but you know we can have a really really long discussion on that because it's, it's interesting but i i noticed Stephen has dropped out now so i think uh, you know it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's glazed over yeah i'm just thinking of the time because we're not even halfway through our questions list that we've got for you <laughs> okay we've been i'll on do for short about answers 50 minutes <laughs> no, that's all right so I, i'm trying to matthew's talking away and i'm trying to think right what can we what can we go to next where can we go well, so go on about dogs. It's got to be the next yes. thing to talk about. Well, <laughs> you, you you love dogs. You've written about dogs. You've translated books about dog training, and I noticed that one of your book your books is about uh, 
a medieval Christmas story with a dog as a star. And I write Christmas books as well because I love that time of year. And it's good fun to write about that. So how did you find that experience of a dog being the star of a Christmas story? Well, that's the dog from the Troubadours Quartet. Yeah. So that, that one was easy because it's a revisiting the story from a different point of view. Right. And that's the second time that I'd written as a dog. So I was sort of used to that because... I wrote a modern dog story from a dog's point of view, and that's actually the one that's my bestseller, if you like. <laughs> that someone to someone to look up to is the one people like the best. And what I did in both of them was to show dog training from the dog's point of view, and it's very different when you think like a dog. Yes, I bet it is. So, yeah. Yeah. So do they have dialogue and stuff? I assume they do. Well, they think, yeah, and they have internal yeah. monologues going on. Yeah, and it's a really, uh, I'm, I'm not someone who writes sentimentally about animals. So there's some quite rough bits because I like dogs being dogs, mm. but there's still that decision about, in order to communicate, you've got to actually use language a dog wouldn't use. So it's finding the a halfway house, if you like, that still has a doggy feel about it. So, for instance, in the modern dog story, they're in an animal shelter and the dogs are telling each other the story of how they came to be there at twilight. And you know from your dogs at twilight, the dogs all start barking to each other. <laughs> and they're communicating. Now, what they're saying yeah. is yeah, my... not something I can promise you I've got right. But in the shelter, they bark. They bark their stories, <laughs> and the the other dogs listen and join in in sort of pack solidarity. And you'll hear that as well. Yeah, I was all the dogs barking together. Yeah. I find it I find it amusing. The other day, just I think it was just yesterday night, we were walking um, blue, and we walked past a fence, and the dog inside the garden. It was dark already, sort of just after you know about sort of this time in the evening, and the dog barked and blue just went mental and started pulling and sort of growling back and 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 i always joke and sort of say that the dog said something you know rude to him or whatever you know because he got like really sometimes he'll just ignore the, the dog barks and he doesn't yeah, he just doesn't yeah, and i was yeah. saying to the wife i was going he was like you know saying back to the dog and i pretended to be blue and i was like going, you know i'll have you you so and so and i was <laughs> basically imagining what this dog had shouted to him you know saying exactly. oh you you know yeah yeah, that's that's exactly what I did. And I always when when my Pyrenees in particular did the twilight thing, because that's their job is to keep the wolves away, even when there aren't any wolves. And I used to say, How many Dalmatians are missing again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the dogs like Christmas as much as we do? No. No. Not interesting. Um, not at all. I never do Christmas presents for dogs. And I, never <laughs> I just made it in your special food. <laughs> oh, in the book. Oh well. <laughs> right in the Christmas in the Christmas tale yeah. one, it's actually very medieval, mm -hmm. and you've got the dogs uh, in the sheepfold, and it is the story of a, a dog. Uh, a Pyrenean mountain dog's life looking after the sheep but it's also the story of him finding the the troubadour that girl I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier and how that came to be 
So what he's running from at the beginning of that. And, yeah, exactly. That sounds great. Yeah. So I see you've done, you know, we've, we've talked about all these different things that you've done, writing all different styles and um, photography and all the different stuff. Um, you've also done some translating into English, I presume, from French. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would I would only ever translate into my mother tongue. Yeah. But the the translation came um from the dog training. Okay. Through online online forums for Pyrenean mountain dogs, I came across um a dog training book by Michelle Hasbrook, which I really thought was good. And we again we're going back 18 years now. And I wrote to him because sometimes it's nice to write to an author. And I said, I love your book. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fangirl. If I <laughs> I really like an author, then I, I might do that. And I asked if he could recommend someone writing in English who had the same theories and principles and practice. And he said, well, why don't you translate my book into English? Seems reasonable. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, why don't I? Oh, bugger this, I'll do it. And I then went to, I did that, and I found um, a, a very, very good publisher in the UK, you know, Sod's Law. I couldn't place my own books, but I could place that one. And the, I went to do dog training with him. He had a, um, he was French, but he lived in Switzerland. So the joke was that I'd take my dog to Swiss finishing school. <laughs> yeah. But amazing, amazing experience. That's great. And yeah, so um, the French publisher of that book, I was then in contact with, and he got in touch with me a couple of times to translate books. And I knew that I ought to be writing my own, but I often stop and think, what do I actually want to do? So well, I thought, oh, bugger it. And when someone offers you a lot of money, I can't say that I, was, I didn't notice that. I was going to say, so you've got to make a living as well. So yeah, if somebody exactly. says to you, you know, do you yeah. want to write something or translate something, you know, then. And I, I, I love translation. I learned from it. It was very, very good. So I did a couple of books for that big French publisher. That's interesting. So, That's uh, so all of those different writing styles that you've worked on, on the historical fiction and memoir and translation, poetry, um, fantasy, modern, which do you prefer of all of those different sort of writing things? Which would you choose to, if you could only choose one of them to continue doing? I think I'm 67 in two weeks' time, and I think there are different genres for different times in your life I've written for television as well I never actually got past the second round free standers thank god <laughs> um but the I tried all kinds of things so some of it was experimentation I think and the poetry that I started off with was when I was in the turbulent 20s and particularly miserable and I think misery and poetry, you know, the Bon Jovi, like a poet needs the pain. I think there was a little bit of that to writing only poetry. And at the moment, the at the moment, I'm really happy in the 12th century. Yeah. Uh, but the, the fantasy came around because I was very angry about the environment. Okay. And because I, I keep bees and I'd be been stung by 50 of the little buggers when I mishandled them and had a horrible experience. And a friend said, what if you'd had superpowers from that? 
And so uh, I have to write the story about that then. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. Is it, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. But it did to me. It's interesting you said about the poetry, and because I remember when I was at doing English at school, um, A level, which I failed. But um, the thing I most liked about English literature was, or one of the things I most liked was Keats. And of course, he died when he was twenty-five, and it was all yeah. misery and unrequited <laughs> love and dreadful. And I was eighteen, you know, and, and so it was perfect. You know, <laughs> that Abs- sort of romantic absolute- poetry is brilliant. Absolutely perfect. And, you know, Keats being half in love with Eastwood oh, yeah, Death yeah. and oh, wonderful. But he lost me when the lover died and the girlfriend buried his head in a pot of basil. Yeah, yeah. That had me hysterically that's, but that's, laughing. It's based on a, on, a, on a Boccaccio, isn't it? Isn't it based on a classical yeah. poem or something? I still, I still it's, think yeah. it's it's hilarious. And how she cries I over just, the over the over the pot of basil, and the, and oh, the basil grows extra yeah, big because I, it's in the. You know, I'm sorry, but but just no, no, no. But That's not what you do. I think it's, it's probably sort of 12th century or something. I think it's based on a, on on something from 13th, 12th century yeah, or something. Yeah, and the, I remember a medi a Middle English story similar. Um, but not not the one that's derived from, where she kept his corpse under her bed and brought it out every night to kiss it. Yeah, we've, oh, we've all yes. done it. <laughs> actually, yes, sounds, right. that sounds familiar. I'm, I'm sure yeah, there's some yeah. true crime <laughs> stories where people have actually done that. Uh, yes, I'm sure it does. Do. Yeah, but it's not romantic. No, well, please to don't, them, please I don't tell me. Please don't tell me you think it's romantic. Oh, certainly, I don't. <laughs> I'm sure some weirdo does. Obviously, obviously, Keats thought it was romantic, but yeah, he was. Yeah. He was very weird. He was like, um, he was like Jim Morrison in the in the early 19th century, wasn't he? Really, <laughs> it's all about yeah. looking forward to death and just being weird. I wanted to ask you, Jean, being Welsh, have you ever thought of writing about the history of that country? Because I think Wales is often overlooked in historical fiction. It's not its influence isn't really properly appreciated. Totally agree, and I'm ad- adopted Welsh. I have to confess right. here because with the soldier father, I had a a nomadic childhood. But I moved to Wales when I was twenty two and lived there longer than anywhere else. Uh, and so it's it's as much my country as anywhere is ever going to be. And I did write quite a lot about the twelfth century history in a couple of my books. One is the last of the Troubadours books, and also in a children's story. And I agree that it's misrep underrepresented, but the I found a great deal of prejudice against Welsh history among publishers uh, and in bookshops. I did a, my teenage and university years were in York and I did a reading there when my first novel came out and had the joy of a book assistant yelling from one end of the room to the other, no, it's set in Wales, so it won't sell. Wow. I suppose and... that's, I mean, I understand that, but I think people think that that history is all English when it's actually Welsh. They just well, kind of think... lump it in, it's, it's Welsh. I don't think yeah. the Welsh think that. <laughs> no, the Welsh don't, but I think people in England or Scotland or America, whatever, well, they, they think the Welsh it... history is actually English history when it's not. Yeah, I think there's a bit of that, but also it's it's just not... Um... 
ever managed to get trendy. I've done a couple of festivals back in Wales, um, really great festivals. And I was chairing a panel for Welsh crime writers and the question came up as to whether they felt it was more difficult. And there was, oh, there's that great detective series on TV that's set in Wales. Is that Lewis or something? Is that? No, no. The the dark, a dark one. Can't remember the name of it now, but it, it was very popular at the time. And it was a breakthrough to actually have that going mainstream in the UK. And they said there is a prejudice against the crime writing set in Wales against um, TV series set in Wales going across the UK and there are breakthroughs it did look as if it was changing but it's still more difficult that's the experience I can only talk about the experience of the writers I was mixing with and I've certainly had that and with my moment in York about you know we it won't sell because it's set in Wales they also said now if it was set in India, it would be fine because Indi books set in India were popular. Right. So it wasn't that they wanted books set in England. It was specifically not, not Wales. Wales. I mean, uh, from <laughs> thinking of thinking of, of that from a logical perspective, I'm thinking, okay, subcontinent of India, you have nearly a billion people. You have like <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many million, like five million people in in Wales or something. So you probably, um, you know, you're opening yourself up to a much larger. Um, readership by writing something based in india I actually thought about it myself i sort of wondered if i could if i could write something set in india you know no, i don't i don't agree with that because i i think what readers... do you think wales is as big as india <laughs> well the, it is to me because obviously size size as you know is but we the um i think it depends on readers and It'd be an interesting one to survey on Twitter and find out whether readers prefer to read books set where they live, because I don't think they do. I mean, I hang out with lots of fantasy writers, so obviously they set their places in other worlds. Yeah. I mean, maybe just I their I, accent. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been slightly facetious, but I have been to India a few times and there's massive bookshops. Um, so they definitely like to read. I think it might um, just so. be the accent. The Welsh accent is like the Scottish accent. A lot of people don't really understand it. So you're not going to get as many TV shows and things like that. And we're kind of pushed to the side a bit. So I set my Druid books quite a bit of it in England, specifically because of that, just to draw in more readers. That's really interesting. And I, I don't think um, I meant, Matthew, that, there weren't the bookshops and the readers in India. I'm just saying that they might read books that aren't necessarily set in India. No, obviously, obviously, yeah, people read books that are set in all sorts of places. Well, from yeah. my own experience, Indian people certainly don't read my books anyway. No matter how much I tried Facebook yeah. adverts and stuff, none of them seem to buy my books. The the first semi-public reading I did of any of my books uh, when I, with The Serpent Sword, when it was before it's published, was actually to some people in India. So there you go. I was like Did they sitting... buy it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there were people. They, they were a captive audience. There were people I worked with, and they, they said, "They said, oh, go and read us a bit of you of the book that you, you've written." Then so I said, "Okay." So I think it was just about. It's interesting. It's really interesting finding out where your readers are and what they're like, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things that when you stay in a genre, you get more of a sense. Because mm -hmm. I found from advertising that sixty percent of my readers 
for the ring breaker are men. Yeah. And previously it was 60% were women, but I definitely have a lot of men who read my books. So it's no good for my books having covers with, you know, uh, a woman looking uh, wistful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for giving a polite word. Yeah. That's fine. We'll, we'll settle on wistful. Yeah. <laughs> or sexy. Normally, normally, the, 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 normally <laughs> the ones I hate is the, the decapitated woman. There's always the, the woman's body with no head looking like yeah. but, but sort of with a back to the camera and, and wistfully sort of staring yeah. out over the sea. But that was a fashion, wasn't it? And the fashions change and you can't change your covers every time the fashion in them changes. Yeah, that's true. Well, I thank you, right, because I'm sure Matthew's the same. Our readers, historical fiction, are mostly men and are mostly in the UK or America. And funnily enough, the stats for this podcast are exactly the same. The listeners are the same. Mm -hmm. Really? Oh, that is interesting. No, I didn't know that. And they're all yes. of a certain age. They're all kind of over, like, 35. Not all, but, yeah, majority. Most of them, yeah, 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 the yeah. vast majority are basically like us, really. Yeah, basically you write, you write yeah, stuff that... I suppose you write what you what you like to read and then similar people will read but it. I but, read um, books like this when I was in my 20s as well, but it doesn't seem to be catching on with the younger audience the way I would have expected mm-hmm. or hoped. <laughs> Yeah, I just don't think they're reading as much, I suppose. Although I saying that, my daughter I, now started reading. I loads, saw this so mate. I don't know. Yep, my daughter reads all. But she's time. not reading this sort of stuff at all. So no. she reads um, fantasy. No. Um, she's really into fantasy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> one of my readers then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so from previous, so changing the subject, moving away from history for a minute, um, from previous email conversations that we've had before, like the build up to this, um, I know, Jean, that you're, into rock music you're into lots of different types of music but you 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 let drop into conversation that um you liked rock music and that you've seen some great acts over the years um i was wanted to ask you what was the first gig that you ever went to well certainly the first one i remember going to was a bit of a shocker um the I lived in York when I was in my teenage years and they used to have some great rock bands playing in the school halls there you you can't believe it now that they, they were touring and later I saw status quo twice for instance so that was quite a big name band in those days but the the one that stayed in my mind and I checked online to see whether my memory was just you know shot to hell and I was making <laughs> things up but nope December 1970, when I was 14. Wow, okay. Yeah, as a 14-year-old, I went along with my uh, older boyfriend and his mates, and we went to Nunthorpe School Hall, where we saw Hawkwind. Wow. Right, with Lamy. And Yeah, and, see, my eyesight's terrible, and I don't like wearing glasses. So I went without my glasses because I hadn't even told my boyfriend that I wore glasses. And that was going to be a big shock for him, I thought, that would finish things. So no glasses, couldn't see anything. And yeah, one of the, the, the mates came up and said, did you see that? The drummer came on naked. <laughs> and of course, I didn't have my glasses on. So I had no idea. But I was hoping that the strobes would stop so I could get a closer look, you know. <laughs> Because a, a naked man was, you know, pretty, a bit pretty of a, unusual, no- a yeah. novelty for a 14-year-old. And I still don't know 
whether the drummer came on naked. But <laughs> nobody, nobody ever owned up to having told me a lie. And so I chose to believe that that was the case and I'd missed it. And the story of my life, uh, you know, I'm there and I just don't see the exciting things going on. But I, when I looked up online, because I knew I was coming on this podcast and I thought, what interesting things do I know about rock bands? And apparently they used to have a naked dancing girl so come with them. Right. He knows, obviously. <laughs> obviously, Stephen yeah. knows. <laughs> so Completely naked as well. But surely to goodness, Fantastic. even even my mates would know the difference between <laughs> a, a naked, naked man. man and a naked girl. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think you would. If you'd seen the pictures, yeah, I think yeah. you would see the difference. Yeah. She was so, rather attractive, wasn't she? I mean, she was, you know, they didn't yeah. put a dancing Busty, naked. Busty. Yeah. Uh, well, so I've missed it all so anyway. you had Saskia on one side of the stage, a naked drummer in the middle, and Lemmy on the other side. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> and all all I remember is is as with most of the the concerts, you're in a small school hall, and they had strobes, and they had the energy was incredible, mm. and of course the the dancing we did then it, it wasn't a couple dancing, it was a gang of you just going crazy and head banging, and actually um one of the guys did give another a black eye once dancing so pretty fierce yeah. so proper proper um, mosh pit sort of style dancing then it was completely i was yeah. i was going to ask what you well well there was a question the best, there the best one i assume it's uh, the same question what was the best yes. concert you went to the most memorable um much more recent al stewart was one of the best ones I don't know if you have come across him, but he he was a big name in the 70s with the sort of lyrics that I was writing as poetry where you you really splurged all your emotions about your girlfriend, boyfriend, everything that had gone wrong. But he was clever with it. And he turned up at Pontadawi in South Wales oh, 25, 30 years ago. And he thought he was playing Swansea because Pontadawi is somewhere nearby. But again, it was a small hall instead of the huge Swansea mm. venue that he was expecting. And he just, you could see him mentally adjusting, you know, okay. And there was him and his guitar, and he took requests from the audience. I've never seen anyone do that. Mm. And we would just call out which song we wanted. And, and it was, and he could play it. And he was quite absolutely brilliant. Um, but there's there's a few concerts stay in my mind. So, but I'll go for that one because it's from the rock era, and just amazing. I, can, I, I love the, the, you saying that you could see him sort of mentally adjusting to the fact that he wasn't <laughs> yeah. quite what he expected. But I love that. I mean, that, that's that's a true performer that can yeah, you know, yeah get thrown into a difficult difficult mm -hmm. situation and yeah. you think, okay, this isn't what I expected, but I'm still here to do a job, and I'm still yeah, going to do, do the, yeah. the thing because I suppose some. Some prima donna type artists you can imagine yeah, storming absolutely. off and say, "I'm not playing here," yeah. you know. To... Yeah, because he he was he was a really big name, and he still made recent albums that are quite interesting. Brilliant. Well, we've talked about pretty much the gamut of stuff, but um, obviously we can't talk forever. <laughs> um, nope. <but> it's... <laughs> There's one thing that we do ask everybody. We've asked a lot about music already. So one thing we do ask everyone um, is what are you reading at the moment? What have you been reading over the last 
couple of weeks. Yeah, on the non-fiction, I've been reading Secrets of the Viking Navigators by Leif K. Carlson. I don't mm. know. If, have you come across that one? No, but it sounds interesting. It's absolutely brilliant. I think it came out in 2018. And at the same time, I bought myself a sunstone. Oh, right. Okay. Which, which is Iceland Spa, which is a kind of calcite, which they might have used as one of their navigational tools yeah. because I couldn't understand it without having one. <laughs> it's, it's one of those so, things that I keep on reading about it. And they say, you know, you held it up so you can see the sun. It's like, what? I, I've never understood it either. I've never understood how right. they're supposed to. So I've got the book, I've got the sunstone, and all I need is a foggy day. And I've tried to talk my man into navigating around the garden with a sunstone in the fog but he's just not really into it and so if the two of you felt like coming over <laughs> it was yeah. only work in the fog we're supposed to be well, well otherwise you, you can don't, see the sun you don't you? Yeah. exactly what he said if you can see the sun you don't need it all right because okay. what it's right. what it's doing what what you do i'll give you the technical stuff because i've worked so hard on this that it's a crystal which is in rhomboid form, which is like a squash, a squash rectangle. And because of that, it does this double refraction thing. So if you put one dot on the top of it, right, okay. it'll give you it'll show you two dots when you look through that's it. That's the direction of the sun. Well, it'll the two dots when they're I've heard two different versions of this now, so I've yet to confirm, but one says when the two dots look the same, you're in the direction of the sun. That's the lightest part okay. of the sky. But the other version says that when they're on top of each other, that's where the sun is. So I'm going to experiment now and I'll, I'll let you know how that goes. And if anybody listening to this knows which is right as to how you navigate with um, this form of calcite and your dot on the top, yeah, join in. Yeah, so that's hmm. that's probably the the best description I've had uh, I've heard so far. Normally, it's quite a vague <laughs> sort of thing, which makes me think that historical fiction authors who've mentioned the sunstones don't really fully understand, or they can't replicate how it was used, and they sort of fudge it a bit and just sort of say, "Yes, they held up the stone to the sky, and oh, this all the way." And <laughs> hallelujah! Yeah, because yeah, then it's, I, you know, no, I don't of, think so. You can fudge it a bit, I suppose, but. Um, no, the science is good with this because it is it's called optical calcite. And the quickly just to say that my I always need books on the go and my fiction read at the moment is The World Breakers Requiem by Luke Tarzian, which is fantasy and it's lyrical and weird and different and it's like an opium dream and I love it. Wow. And not that I know what an opium dream is, but I have you read You the can't books. convince People us now. You. Yeah. Right. And the reason I chose that is it was a semi-finalist in the self-published fantasy blog off run by bestseller Mark Lawrence. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So 300 books go in and they get churned around by 10 blogs. I got churned around, didn't come out. And the um, 10 finalists then have a a contest between them but it throws up some great great fantasy reads oh brilliant yeah so, i've seen i've seen him i've seen mark lawrence mention that but i've not really followed the you know how it goes but yeah it's interesting 
Well, you like, I know the two of you read epic fantasy. Yeah. You'll, yeah. Find, you'll find some crackers there, absolute crackers. For me, the most difficult thing is finding time to read at all. Yeah, That's anything. my main problem. Uh, novels, yeah. All I read is non-fiction. Although I have read a really good novel this week. So uh, I've actually read, finished reading um, an advanced copy of Battle Song by Ian Ross. Oh, which, I like those um, books, yeah. Ian Ross did Roman stuff. And um, if he's listening to this, I've actually sent him a nice quote to use on the cover. It's not out until next March. So he can use a nice quote, but he's not responded. So, you know. Can to- I have the quote? Get your act together, Ian. Anyway, it's it's really no really no good. sell sell me the quote. I'll use it. <laughs> I'll sell you a quote. Yes, okay. absolutely you, fantastic. You're, Loved you're, every you're, second. Yeah. If you bang him, uh, bang him a can of ten of super. He'll sell yeah, it. no, no. Uh, just you know, we'll negotiate afterwards. <laughs> well, it, it it actually um is a great great book though. I really enjoyed it. It's set in the mid thirteenth century, um, and a real well. You just departure. changed the century on that. We're there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real departure for, for for Ian Ross, but very very good. Um, and yeah, at some point maybe you'll see the um, the great <laughs> quote that I said. But my basically my basic take was that um, his Roman books are great. This is even better. Really really good. Really enjoyed mm. it. His Roman books are good. I listened to the audible versions. Mm. So Jean, what have you been listening to? And do you listen to music when you write? Um, yeah, sometimes. I can see behind you, you've uh, got quite a collection of CDs there. Yeah, I like to see covers. I'm just not very good at knowing which tracks are there on this um, modern download it stuff. So I like having the CDs. But I've, like you, I'm listening to audiobooks and I had lectures by Dr. Jackson Crawford Norse myths and legends, and he—you've got to listen. I think I have to to I've listened to him. He's an American guy, isn't he? Um, he is. He's yeah. a cowboy. Yes, he's right yeah, up he's, your street. He's called cowboy. Yeah, cowboy and Norse. I've seen quite a few of his YouTube things. Yeah, and I thought this guy is like just—he's just a whole level of cool. That yeah, he sort of stands like the Colorado mountains or the Rockies or whatever, doesn't he? And so there's bits of snow yeah, falling. And yeah. He's like. I'm just with his cowboy hat, and so I'm going to talk to you about some old Norse now. What was it called? Jackson oh. Crawford. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually absolutely. got Norse mythology right there. Yeah, I've been listening to that uh, as well. Oh, it's yeah. absolutely. I could listen to him just just to listen. He's so easy on the ear and on the eye if you watch his YouTube videos. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I think that's. We, uh, yeah, we you, better think about you, whether I'm allowed to say you're that. You're going to be oh. cancelled. We didn't say it. You know, it's. it's no, I know it was enough. me. I'm old enough you're, to you're say <laughs> the um and today on YouTube I have been listening to Danheim and their Fimble radio, which is non-stop Viking music. Really? So it's just got a ry- rhythmic beat and and lots of sound Chanting. that you don't get. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But then you know the way YouTube shows you something that's similar and you don't even notice you've switched. And I could not believe it because there's, I'll put the links up afterwards, but there's a new one on the block called Aeolia, who's actually made a whole album of the Hovermol lyrics, taking them from the, wait for it, Jackson Crawford translation. And they 
credit him. So we come full circle. The words, yeah. And I thought, you know, the connections are amazing, aren't they? Well, the internet as well. I mean, the fact that somebody can do some music like that and actually get people to listen to it where, you know, or us with our books. I mean, the, the, the fact that we can get out all this podcast, get things out to people's ears, you know, around the world or people to, to read things or see things. It's um, it's a, it's an amazing time we live in because it would have, you know, yeah. decades ago, it would have been impossible for, for lots of this stuff to get out there and people to see it and find it. So nobody would have heard this podcast. It would be a disaster. It would have been <laughs> before podcasts were invented. We could have done this. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you, Gene, for coming along and being such a great guest. It's been Thanks very brilliant. much. Yes, it's been an enjoyable conversation. Yeah. Been... I'm sorry I've talked too much, but I've thoroughly enjoyed myself and I love your theme tune. I think you've done a great job with that. Oh, Thanks thank very you much. very much. Yeah, I wrote the lyrics for that. Yeah. <laughs> I never actually did that because it was your idea. It was Matthew's idea. The title, you actually, bastard, so never... yeah. <laughs> you wrote the lyrics. You actually, did, you actually, one day we'll have to, we'll have to put out the, um, the original um, scratch vocal that um, Steve did record. So he sent it to me. He sent me the, the track and said, do you want to record vocals on this? And he said, I've laid down a scratch vocal um, thing on there. And I listened to it. I was like, God, I don't know about that. And I had to. It was just me shouting, rock, paper, swords, rock, paper, swords. <laughs> so yeah, Matthew yeah. improved it a bit. I just, just yeah, I did something different anyway. But um, anyway, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Thanks for the for the praise about the theme tune. Hang around, everybody, for a couple of seconds, and then you'll be able to hear the theme tune again. <laughs> okay, thanks, Jean. Well, that's it for today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes. You can contact us on the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash podcast. We're on Twitter at rock underscore swords um, without a blue tick. You can find out more about our books on matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com. We're both also on Twitter and Facebook. And we love to hear from readers and listeners, so drop by and say hi. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. Until next time, a rock, paper, swords. It's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen A. McKay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind, stay safe, and happy reading. (laughs) 